Welcome to Tech Stuff, a production of iHeartRadio's How Stuff Works. Hey there, and welcome to Tech Stuff. I'm your host, Jonathan Strickland. I'm an executive producer with iHeartRadio, and I love all things tech. And today, we're going to talk about lighters. And this is sort of a sequel to our last episode, which was about matches. Uh, Alamona is not in the studio, and I'm happy to report that nothing in my line of vision is currently on fire. So we're going to pick up where we left off in that last episode. And in that episode, I described an invention that used chemistry to create a a flame, to ignite a flame. Now, this particular invention I talked about in the last episode is a pretty dangerous contraption. It used sulfuric acid, which by itself is dangerous. It can seriously injure and disfigure you. Uh, But it was using sulfuric acid and zinc in order to generate hydrogen gas. And hydrogen gas is also potentially really dangerous. Uh, Hydrogen gas is lighter than air, but unlike helium... Hydrogen is extremely flammable. It's the stuff that contributed to the famous Hindenburg disaster. But now we're going to switch over to some other technologies and developments that made the modern lighter possible. Because if you remember in that last episode, though the version I just mentioned was not really practical. Uh, They sold a few thousand of them, but it wasn't something that could easily be used. And it certainly wasn't something you could carry around in your pocket. So our next advance in the making of fire would date back to the beginning of the 20th century, so the early 1900s. That's when an Austrian scientist named Baron Karl Auer von Welbach was working with some mixtures of rare earth elements to see what, you know, they would do. It's what scientists do sometimes, just trying stuff. Well, one of those elements he was working with was a metal called cerium, C-E-R-I-U-M. And it's a relatively soft metal. It's silvery white in color, but it does tarnish when it's exposed to air, so it doesn't stay silvery white for very long. And it's soft enough that you can actually cut this stuff with a knife. So it's a pretty soft metal. Uh, Velbach discovered that creating an alloy which is, you know, a a combination of different uh, metals and other components. But if you create an alloy using iron and cerium, it was actually mostly iron, about 70% iron, 30% cerium, that you would create a substance that could ignite sparks if it was struck or scratched by a harder material. And he called this stuff ferrocerium. And he classified it as a mishmatal, which is sort of a Germanic word that essentially means mixed metal or alloy. Uh, these days, ferrocerium and mishmetal, has a slightly different spelling typically, uh, are frequently used to describe the same thing. Also, a lot of folks will refer to this stuff as flint in modern lighters, but that is misleading. Flint is something very different. And this merits a quick explanation so that you guys can understand and appreciate the difference between flint and ferrocerium. All right, so let's start off with quartz. This stuff is the most abundant mineral found at Earth's surface. So we humans have tons of experience with quartz. If you take one part silicon to two parts oxygen, that's quartz. And it's a durable mineral. 
And it has some really super interesting properties. It's heat resistant, so it's a good component to use in materials where you want to have something that can stand up to great amounts of heat. It also has a really interesting uh, quirky phenomena that's uh, associated with it and some other materials. If you exert a mechanical stress on quartz, in other words, if you hit it, it then accumulates an electrical charge. Or if you expose quartz to an electrical charge, it will exert an internal mechanical strain. It'll vibrate. So you can make quartz pulse at a consistent frequency by applying an electrical charge to it, which is why quartz crystals are used in analog watches and clocks. The predictable, repeatable vibration, that frequency is always going to be the same, is a great way to keep track of the passing of time. And so you use that as sort of the, uh, the, the foundation for all the other timekeeping elements. Uh, but this is not an episode about clockwork. So we'll get back to piezoelectric because it will play a part later on in our episode, but let's leave that off for now. Now, more than that, quartz comes in many different varieties. And one of those varieties is flint. Flint contains a lot of impurities. So it doesn't look like pure quartz at all. It doesn't look like what we think of when we think of the word quartz. Flint tends to be dark gray in color, but it can have other colors in it as well, like brown or red, sometimes even white or yellow. It typically is much closer to opaque than what we think of when we think of quartz. We tend to think of something that's at least translucent with quartz, but flint tends to be almost opaque. And like quartz in general, flint has no flat surfaces of internal weakness, no planar weakness inside quartz, uh, fl flint or quartz. Uh, that means that you do not observe cleavage with quartz or flint, which is, you know, an actual geological kind of term here. So in, in other words, if you were to strike this material hard enough to break it, you would see what's called a conchoidal fracture. That's a, a smoothly curving fracture surface. Glass is uh, a type of material that has conchoidal fractures as opposed to planar fractures uh, or cleavage. By breaking quartz or flint in very precise ways, you can fashion tough, sharp objects, stuff that can stand up to some wear and tear, and it can have a very sharp edge to it, which is why flint was a valuable material in early human history. It could be chipped to shape into stuff like arrowheads, spear points, as well as into cutting tools like axes. Now, getting back to making fires, the property we're interested in with flint is that if you were to strike flint against iron, you can create sparks. But why is that? Well, it's not because of the flint necessarily. It's actually more because of the irons. The iron is pyrophoric, which means it's a material that will ignite under room temperature. And that probably sounds really weird, right? I mean, we've all come into contact with iron. We've all seen iron objects. And most of the time, I think we could agree that it's not you know, currently on fire. So what actually gives here? What's happening and why do I say that iron is pyrophoric? Well, see, when iron encounters air, it begins to oxidize. 
And with iron, that means it develops a thin layer of iron oxide on the outside surface of the iron itself. Iron oxide is known by another name, rust. So the rusting process is a chemical reaction, and it's an exothermic chemical reaction. If you remember from our last episode, an exothermic reaction is one that, in the process of this chemical reaction going on, releases heat. But if you're talking about any appreciable amount of iron, as in more than just a tiny speck of the stuff, that heat dissipates pretty quickly. The relative mass of the iron is great enough that the heat becomes a non-factor. And this is really important. We have to consider the ratio of a any given amount of iron's mass relative to the surface area that is exposed to the air. If the iron has more than a little mass, that heat can dissipate through the rest of the hunk of iron. You know, all the iron atoms that are not exposed to air will just sort of absorb that heat and nothing else happens apart from the external surfaces rusting. And once they rust, they've got this sort of protective layer and thus the rest of the iron atoms aren't exposed to oxygen anymore. Rusting really is just a similar process to burning. That burning is also a chemical reaction in which material oxidizes. It's just that burning happens a lot faster and with, you know, flames and stuff. When you strike iron with a flint, the flint is actually hard enough and typically sharp enough to cause very tiny shards of iron to shear off of whatever it is you're striking. While any part of those tiny pieces that were previously exposed to oxygen still have an iron oxide coating, the rest of those small pieces haven't been touched by oxygen at all. So these are pure iron with no iron oxide on them. And as soon as that surface makes contact with oxygen, the oxidizing process begins immediately. So now we're talking about iron in which the ratio of surface area of exposed iron compared to the mass of that iron has been flipped. It's very little mass and much of it is exposed to oxygen. The mass of the shards uh, is so low that it cannot dissipate that heat. So the exposed surface oxidizes at a rate faster than heat can dissipate. So since the heat can't dissipate, it builds up. It builds up super, super fast, and those tiny shards of iron get hot, hot enough to glow and to reach the ignition temperature of some other fuel source, like the tinder of a campfire. That all happens in the blink of an eye, and that is a spark. The spark you see are these tiny pieces of iron that are oxidizing, and they're generating so much heat that they cannot dissipate that the metal itself begins to glow from that heat. So when you strike iron against flint, you're creating tiny flying shards of white-hot iron particles. And that's why you're able to use those to light a campfire, for example. Flint was also used in early firearms. Flint would be in the striking arm of a gun, like a flintlock rifle or a flintlock pistol. And so you would have this little uh, hammer that would have flint attached to it. And you would have a little cup, essentially a little receptacle cup. And uh, the when you pull the trigger, the hammer would come down and strike inside the cup. It would hit a, another surface that would be made out of pyrite, which is a mix of iron and silicon. The collision would create sparks, which ignites a small amount of gunpowder. It leads into the chamber of the 
firearm. It ignites a larger amount of gunpowder, which causes an explosion and then propels a projectile out of the weapon. So that's where you get your flintlock pistols and your flintlock rifles. Now, technically, you don't absolutely have to use flint if you want to use iron to generate sparks. You really just need something that's hard enough and sharp enough to shear off those tiny particles of iron. That's the secret. It's not the flint. It's really the iron. Flint happens to have that kind of hardness to it naturally. And there's a whole lot of flint that's available readily out in the world. It's close to the surface of the planet, so it's easy to find. So it's a very common pairing with iron or steel. Also remember, steel itself is an alloy of iron and carbon, and sometimes some other stuff too. And carbon steel is mostly iron, like 98% iron, and tends to be fairly brittle as far as steel goes. So it's frequently used in flint and steel kits. In fact, steel is typically better than plain old iron is because iron has a tendency to bend rather than break uh, when it's struck by a harder surface. So you want something that's a little more brittle that will shear off a bit because bending doesn't produce sparks. It just, you know, dents it. Adding carbon makes iron less bendy. So in general, the harder the steel and the sharper the flint, the better sparks you're going to get when you strike the two of them together. Also, if you've ever seen anyone use a machine like a grinder to shape iron or steel, you've likely seen showers of sparks that come down as a result. Those sparks come from the same process I just described. Tiny fragments of pure iron are glowing white hot as they oxidize upon exposure to the air. All right, but what about ferrocerium? I mentioned that earlier. Well, for starters, ferrocerium is not a mineral like flint is. And to be fair, some people don't refer to flint as a mineral. They just call it a rock. But ferrocerium isn't a mineral or a rock. It's an alloy. It's made up of two metals. And the combination of iron and cerium turned out to be really useful. You've got iron, which will oxidize rapidly when exposed to air, and you've got cerium, which has a low ignition temperature. So that oxidizing process will ignite the cerium and make the sparks more practical. It makes it more likely that you're able to use them to do something like light a fire. And after he first developed ferrocerium, Velsbach would tweak this alloy to try and fine-tune it to make it more effective as sort of a spark-making, fire-starting material. He discovered that adding another soft metal called lanthanum in very small amounts meant that ferrocerium would create brighter sparks and thus be even more effective as a way of starting fires. Now, in most lighters, the quote-unquote flint in the lighter is actually a piece of ferrocerium. It's not flint, it's ferrocerium. And then most lighters use some sort of wheel made out of a harder material like steel that's a striker. So turning the steel wheel causes the wheel to rub or strike against the ferrocerium quote-unquote flint quickly, and that throws off sparks. There's usually some other piece of the lighter that holds the ferrocerium to a positive pressure against the wheel so that it remains in contact with the wheel even as you start to wear down the ferrocerium. So there's usually some sort of spring or something that 
exerts pressure on that ferrocerium to make sure it remains in contact with the wheel. Because if the ferrocerium loses contact with the wheel, the wheel will just spin freely. You won't get any sparks at all because the material that gives off the sparks isn't in contact with the striking surface anymore. Velsbach's discovery created an alternative to relying on chemistry to generate a flame. The spark would do it, if only you have a supply of fuel. So one of the early inventions to use ferrocerium as a way to start fires was called the pistoliter. I, I actually have an outtake where I said pistoliter because it's spelled like liter, but it's lighter. It's a lighter. Uh, it's from a company called Ronson. And it was called the pistol lighter because it had sort of a pistol grip. In fact, it looked kind of like a little handgun, a little pistol. But instead of shooting bullets, this thing shoots sparks. Ronson would actually play an important part in the early history of lighters. So it makes sense to talk about them for just a minute. The company was founded just before the turn of the 20th century by Louis Vincent Aronson, or Ronson, uh, Leopold uh, Herzig, and Max Hecht, though at the time, the company they call, they formed was called uh, the Art Metal Works. And the company mainly made stuff out of iron, ranging from lamps to decorative items. But Aronson was a, a bit of a, a chemist and an engineer, and he kept liking to, you know, to, to, to fiddle and, and mess with stuff and try and figure out different ways of accomplishing things. He worked on creating better matches before he started making, you know, lighters. And uh, we talked about some of those attempts in the last episode, not about his work in particular, but the attempt to move away from things like white phosphorus as your active component in a match. Well, in 1910, the company uh, introduced the pistol lighter, and inside this lighter was a length of ferrocerium, like a, a surface of ferrocerium inside what would be the barrel of this pistol. And then also inside of it was a spring-loaded file of harder material. And so you could pull back on this and it would uh, have the spring compress and a little catch would be put in place to hold the spring there. And the file would be in its uh, back position. You'd pull a trigger that would release the spring and the spring would thus expand and it would push the file against the ferrocerium inside the barrel of this pistol lighter, and sparks would fly out the end as a result. The pistol lighter didn't create a sustained flame like a modern lighter. It was more of a spark stick type of thing. So the idea was you would aim this at, say, the tinder for a campfire or maybe a motor engine at the time. There were cars that and, and motors that required you to have uh, an actual external ignition source to, to make them work. Scary times. But if all went well, when you pulled the trigger, the sparks from the pistol lighter would ignite whatever it was you were aiming at, and you would have your campfire started or your motor would begin. If it didn't work on the first pass, then you could pull the file back to the starting position, compressing the spring, activating the catch, and you'd be ready for a second go of it. To create a sustained flame, a lighter would need an additional component, one of the three components that make up the fire triangle, and that would be fuel. I'll explain more in just a moment, but first let's take a quick break. All right, we're back. Now, there are three main components 
that I want to focus on with the early lighters that could create a sustained flame. One is the piece of ferrocerium, which, as I just mentioned, frequently gets referred to as the flint, even though flint and ferrocerium are very different things. And technically, it's, again, not flint in flint and steel that gives off the sparks when you're striking them together. It's really the steel, not the flint. If you slam two pieces of flint together, you can sometimes get sparks because sometimes you have trace other elements in there that uh, will create them. But the second component is the striker, which in many lighters is a wheel that has a ribbed outer edge, and that is pressed against the ferrocerium, or rather, I should say, the ferrocerium is pressed against the wheel. And so typically you would put like your thumb on the wheel, for example, and and you would spin it, uh, the wheel, pretty quickly by bringing your thumb down. And that would end up striking against the ferrocerium, and then you get a spark. The third component is a wick, as in a wick like, like what you would find in a candle. And the purpose of the wick is to transfer small amounts of some sort of fuel, such as uh, naphtha, from a fuel container section of the lighter to the area where the wheel and the ferrocerium are generating sparks. And clearly, you want that to be a separate area from the main source of fuel. Otherwise, you'd be igniting all the fuel in one go. And that would be wasteful and probably pretty darn dangerous. So the wick is sort of like a fuel highway. It's very similar to the way a wick works with a candle. So let's talk about the physics involved in that for a second. Because candles are something I never really thought about in the sense of how do those work? I mean, why would you even bother encasing a wick in wax? Why not just burn the wick material? What the heck is going on here? All right, so when you light a candle you light the end of the exposed wick. And that part is easy to understand, right? It starts to burn. So the wick itself is starting to burn. And the heat from that burning wick melts wax at that end of the candle, at the top of the candle. The wick starts to absorb that liquid wax. So it wicks away the wax into the wick itself. The liquid wax if you were to try and light it on fire, it would only burn if you were using really high temperatures, far hotter than what a burning wick would be able to create. The liquid wax in the wick continues to heat up and it starts to vaporize. And while liquid wax only burns at super high temperatures, wax vapor is different. It's flammable at the right temperature of, of a candle. So the vaporizing wax is what you're actually seeing burn when a candle is burning. And the vaporizing wax also has the effect of cooling the wick underneath as it vaporizes. It's carrying heat away. So the wick doesn't just burn away. That's why the wick can remain serviceable even as the candle continues to burn. It doesn't just burn up and become useless. So the wick remains a conduit for the liquid wax. So if you just set fire to a wick, if it didn't have any candle around it, it would just burn up pretty quickly and then you'd be in the dark again. But a candle isn't burning up the wick as its primary fuel. It's burning up the wax. Right, so a lighter wick serves the same purpose as a candle wick, which is, again, to convey fuel through absorption or wicking from the fuel container to the combustion area. The fuel for early lighters was, as I said, nephtha or nuphtha. 
that's a term that originates from the Middle East, particularly around Azerbaijan and Iran. And it was used to describe a particularly volatile type of petroleum found in those regions. But then it would get applied to all sorts of different stuff after that. Uh, like it was described as early as the first century by smarty pants eggheads like Pliny the Elder. But later folks would use that term to refer to all sorts of different stuff and it confused the matter. Like alchemists and scholars in the Middle Ages would use it to describe pretty much any liquid with a low boiling point. For our purposes, we're talking about a hydrocarbon fuel. In 1912, the Ronson Company introduced the Wonder Light. And unlike the Pistolite, this lighter actually contained fuel and used a wick so that the sparks would ignite the fuel that was in the wick and create a sort of permanent match. That's what they called it. Now, it was much easier to light stuff like lamps and candles that way. You weren't just shooting sparks. You had a sustained flame and you could use that to light other stuff. And there may well have been other lighters in a similar vein of this type uh, that might have even been invented before the Wonder Light. But as it turns out, this is one of those topics where it's really hard to find a definitive history on the subject. And it's also difficult to trace back who created the very first version of whatever particular incarnation you're looking at. But in 1926, Ronson introduced a super cool lighter, a pocket lighter called the Banjo. This lighter had a button, essentially a lever. So imagine a little lighter where you've got a lever and you push down on the lever. And when you do that, it has sort of a double action result. One is that this pushing down would also turn a striking wheel that would rub up against some ferrocerium and thus create a spark. So pushing down on the, the lever, you get a spark out of it. But the other effect was that it lifted a cap off of the wick for this lighter. So when the lever is in the up position, you know, unpressed, the cap is down, pushing down on the lever creates the spark and reveals the wick in the same go. So the spark can hit the wick that's got fuel on it, and then the wick can light. Letting go of the button, you know, as long as you hold the button, the light is it, the light still remains, the flame is still lit. But letting go of the button means the cap comes down and it extinguishes the fire because it cuts off the supply of oxygen which is, again, one of the three things we need in order to sustain a fire. You need the fuel, you need the heat, and you need an oxidizer. So you remove the oxidizer, the flame goes out. This made the banjo the first automatic pocket lighter in the world. In 1927, the company would release a tabletop version of the banjo. So this was one that you would not carry around with you in your pocket. Uh, it would be a, a piece on a desk or a table that you would use to light various things. Typically cigarettes. I don't like talking about that because I don't like cigarettes. Uh, but that was the typical application of the time. As for fuel, well, I found a manual on how to care and refuel a banjo lighter. And boy, howdy, did it raise my eyebrows. Because according to the manual, you could use, quote, high-grade gasoline, benzene, or energine as fuel. Gasoline. That lighter must have smelled terrible. So to refuel, uh, it had two screw caps on this lighter, a big one and a small one. So you would want to unscrew the larger of the two screw caps, and that would open up a, uh, uh, access to the fuel chamber. 
And presumably you would then use a funnel and you would very carefully refuel the lighter or else risk spilling something like gasoline all over it and turning it into a very dangerous one-use item. The other screw cap, the smaller one, was for the chamber that held the piece of ferrocerium in place so that the strike wheel would maintain contact with the ferrocerium. And so imagine that you've got this little piece of this material that when it's struck, it gives off sparks. And it's being held against this wheel through the use of a spring that's slightly compressed. Uh, So the screw cap opened up the chamber where the spring was. So if your ferrocerium ran out, you know, you're spinning the wheel and no sparks are coming out, probably means that there's no more ferrocerium or that it's been worn down so far that it's no longer making contact with the wheel. You would unscrew the screw cap. You take the spring out. You would take out whatever little remnants of the ferrocerium you had in there. You put a new piece in to that chamber, a new piece of ferrocerium. You would put the the spring back in to the chamber, and you would have to compress it down a little bit as you screwed the screw cap back in place. And it would, again, hold the new piece of ferrocerium against that striking wheel so that you would have the sparking material right there, ready to go for the next time you need to use the lighter. So you could actually use these things indefinitely as long as the other components held out. The banjo sold for $5, according to most sources I came across. Now, you know me. I had to find out how much that would be if we were to purchase it today, right? Because this was $5 back in 1926. So according to inflation calculators, $5 back in 1926 would be about the same amount as $72 today if we we factor in inflation. So this would be a lighter that would cost 72 bucks. That's a pretty expensive lighter. But I guess if you're thinking that this could potentially replace the need for matches for like ever maybe, that could be a deal if you're going through matches like crazy. These days, the original Ronson banjo lighters, if you can find them in good condition can sell for a couple of hundred to several hundred dollars. They are sought after by collectors. Uh, Since 1928 or so, the only Ronson banjo lighters that have been made have been replicas out of Japan. So those obviously are not as valuable. It's only the ones between 1926 and 1928 that were originally made by Ronson that will fetch those higher prices. Lighters like the banjo have lids so that the fuel doesn't just gradually evaporate away. If you kept that wick exposed to air, then fuel would start to evaporate over time and you would continue to see it wick away from the fuel chamber and then uh, evaporate into the atmosphere. So you would end up running out of fuel much faster. So you want to have some sort of cap that keeps that from happening. Another brand would make this style of lighter incredibly famous, particularly in America. That brand was Zippo. And Zippo's founder was a guy named George G. Blaisdell. And the story goes that in the early 1930s, Blaisdell saw a guy at the Bradford Country Club, where Blaisdell was hanging out, uh, in Pennsylvania, struggle to light a a cigarette from an Austrian-built lighter. But the lighter was kind of unwieldy, and it looked like it required two hands to operate. It was made out of very thin metal, so that thin metal was actually soft enough where if you were gripping it too tightly, you could dent 
the lighter just through trying to use it. So Blaisdell saw the opportunity to improve upon that design and create a pocket lighter for the United States because he also saw that people really like cigarettes and they were going through matches like crazy. So if you could market something like that, you could really make some money. So Blaisdell then goes and purchases the United States production and distribution rights for that Austrian lighter manufacturer. So now Blaisdell has the rights to make and sell those style lighters in the U.S. However, it didn't go over so well. Uh, He gave them a chrome plating to kind of make them more attractive and a little more durable. And he tried to sell them, but the lighters just didn't work very well. So he ultimately decided to scrap that approach entirely and to make his own lighters. So he rented out a small workspace and he hired three people and they collectively tried to build a prototype for a new type of lighter. Blaisdell sunk nearly 300 bucks, a princely sum in 1932, to purchase used equipment, machining equipment, in order to design and build this lighter. Together, they built a lighter that had a hinged top. Uh, If you open the top, it would expose the striking wheel and the wick to the the air. Uh, And the wick itself was housed inside a chimney-like chamber to protect it from the wind. So you could use the lighter even if you were out on a windy day. You could also open the lighter with one hand. You could flick it open. Uh, All it took was the spin of the wheel to strike against the ferrocinium flint to cause a spark. Uh, That would ignite the fuel on the wick in the chimney and you would get a nice bright flame. So if you practiced, you could flip open the lighter with one hand, you could roll the wheel with your thumb, or if you're trying to be, you know, like serious cool person, you flip open and then you strike that wheel against your hip or your thigh or something and you light it and then you do your cool, you know, I meant to do that kind of face. I can't, I can't do that face because I, if I meant to do it, it didn't happen. And if it happened, I'm, I'm just as surprised as you are. Anyway, the flame would stay active with these Zippo lighters until either all the fuel was gone or you flipped closed the lid in order to cut off oxygen to the flame. So you didn't have to do anything to keep it lit. You know, you, you roll the striking wheel. As soon as those sparks ignite the fuel on the wick, it was going to stay lit until you either closed it or you uh, uh, ran out of fuel or something else happened, like maybe... I don't know, you dunked it in water or something. Blaisdell liked the sound of the word zipper. He felt that it just had a really good zing to it. So he decided to take an, a kind of a variant on that, and he named the lighter the Zippo. The original price for a windproof Zippo was $1.95 in 1932, which means that today it would cost you about $36. Now, if you wanted to go out and buy a brand new Zippo today, prices start somewhere around 20 bucks, and they go up from there, reaching more than $100 for certain limited edition Zippos. They're known not only for their iconic hinged top and the fact that they'll stay lit once you light them, but also for the types of artwork that are featured on them. I think my own personal favorite is one that is the Brass Necronomicon lighter. But then I'm also the guy who wrote How Cthulhu Works, as well as How the Necronomicon Works for HowStuffWorks.com. By the way, I don't own a Zippo, but if I did, that's probably the one I would go for. Now, if you were to open up a modern Zippo lighter, Uh, With the traditional fuel, so for example, let's say that you need to 
replace the wick or you need to refuel the Zippo, here's how that would go. You would open up the case, and the Zippo case is just that. It's a case. It's, It's not the lighter itself. The lighter is inside the case, and you can actually pull the lighter out, lifting it out of the case. You turn the lighter upside down, and on the underside, you're going to see a felt pad being held in place by a screw that's uh, actually in a, inside of a tube. That tube holds the uh, ferrocerium uh, or, or flint screw. It's a piece that has the, the ferrocerium at the very end of it. Uh, If you're just refueling, you don't even need to touch that screw cap. You just move the felt pad out of the way, like you you bend it out of the way, and then you would see some packing material inside the the lighter. It kind of looks like cotton wadding, but it's this very specific type of packing material. So you would then take some lighter fluid. Zippo has its own specific brand it would prefer you to use, and you would saturate that packing material. You would squirt the lighter fluid into the packing material itself. Once it was saturated, you would move the felt pad back into place to cover it up, and you would probably want to give the lighter a pass or two with a clean cloth to remove any excess fuel that might have spilled on the outside of it. Then you would replace the lighter inside the case. You want to also give the case a pass or two with a clean cloth. Then wait a little bit to allow the lighter fluid to heat up to room temperature, and then you could use the lighter again, and it would be totally refueled. Uh, While the purpose of a wick is to hold fuel and the wick itself isn't really meant to burn up, over time, carbon deposits on the wick will make the wick less effective. It won't absorb fuel, and then you'll get sparks when you're trying to use your lighter, but it won't actually light. So... If you're using a Zippo-like lighter, what you would do is you use some tweezers or a pair of needle nose pliers to grab hold of the end of the wick, and you would pull it out a little bit so that you get a clean section of wick inside the chimney of that lighter. Uh, Wicks are several inches long, so you can do this a couple of times with each wick. And when you do that, you would then snip off the end of the burnt wick, the carbon-infused wick. to remove that part so that you get a nice clean section inside the chimney, and then you're good to go for a a good while longer. Now, if you've done that a couple of times, there might not be enough wick left inside the lighter to do it again, and you need to replace the wick. The replacement process is similar to what you would do if you were refueling, but it has some extra steps. So you take the lighter out of the case, and rather than just moving the felt pad on the bottom aside, you would actually remove that screw at the end. Uh, It's called the flint screw. Again, it's ferrocerium, not flint, but whatever. You take out the felt pad because now it's no longer held there by the screw. Uh, You would also take out the packing material, and the packing material typically comes out in three or four wads of the stuff. You would need to feed a new wick into the lighter. You could either do it from inside through the fuel chamber or you could put it down through the chimney and you'd get that so enough of it's poking out the top so that you've got the the clean wick at the top of the chimney. And then you would need to replace the packing material. You'd kind of have to do it in a way so that the packing material is all around the wick so it has good exposure to that packing material. Because remember, it's the packing material that holds the fuel. The fuel then wicks into the wick. So you want to make sure it has really good 
exposure to all of that. So you're packing the material all around the wick until it's all replaced. Then you would put the felt pad back in place and you would reinsert the flint screw. And then you could put it back inside the case and it would be good to go. Now, the reason I went through all that process wasn't to talk about Zippo the brand or anything. I'm not here to sell Zippo lighters, but rather to explain how lighters like the Zippo differ from other types of lighters, specifically those that use butane. Because not all lighters are created equal, and butane lighters work on slightly different principles from these style lighters, the wick-based lighters. I'll explain more in just a moment, but first let's take another quick break. Before the break, I mentioned butane lighters, and they use butane as the fuel, and the basic type still uses a a piece of ferrocerium to generate sparks to ignite that fuel. So in some ways, they're very similar to the other types of lighters I just mentioned, but there are some key differences between butane lighters and the naphtha or lighter fluid-based ones I had just been talking about. At room temperature and under normal atmospheric pressure, butane is a gas. It's naturally colorless and odorless. It's a hydrocarbon that's found in natural gas. It's also a byproduct during the process of refining petroleum to produce gasoline. And it is ignitable. But if you were to compress butane just a little bit, it liquefies. And it doesn't take too much pressure to convert butane from a gas to liquid at room temperature, about three and a half atmospheres of pressure. So if you seal butane in a container that can hold that pressure, you apply that much pressure to it at least, the gas condenses into a liquid. Now, I wish I could tell you when someone thought to use butane as a fuel for lighters, but honestly, there doesn't seem to be any record of when someone thought of that idea first. There are a lot of very general vague descriptions. Some sources go really vague. They say something like, sometime in the 1950s, people started using butane for lighters. Others say it dates back a little earlier than that with the invention of the butane lighter coming somewhere in the 1930s or 1940s. Whenever they were first manufactured and whomever it was that figured it out, they work on a pretty ingenious principle. So inside a butane lighter, the fuel chamber is sealed, so it acts as a low-pressure container. It keeps butane in liquid form because it's under that three and a half atmospheres of pressure. A tube from the fuel chamber to the chimney, you know, the part where the the flame comes up, uh, acts as a conduit for this fuel. And the tube has a valve and a nozzle. So there's a valve, and then right after the valve is a nozzle. So when the lighter's not in use, the valve is shut, so the butane remains in liquid form. There's nowhere for it to go. On a classic butane lighter, you've got the striking wheel, just like in the other lighters I've described, and rather than a wick, you have the end of a nozzle, and then there's this little button that you're supposed to hold down. Like, you spin the wheel, and when your thumb comes down at the end of the spin, it presses this button, and you're supposed to hold it down. That button is the release for the valve that closes off the tube from the fuel chamber. When that valve opens, there's a lower pressure pathway for the butane to move through. And we know that fluids will move from an area of high pressure to an area of low pressure. So when this valve opens, the butane moves up the tube and it hits that nozzle. The butane then boils off into butane gas. 
the spark from the striking wheel uh, and the flint, or pharaoh's cerium, ignites this escaping butane gas. So as long as you hold down the button, you keep the valve open and the butane gas continues to come out and feeds the flame. It, it provides the fuel. So the fuel's constantly being replenished as long as you hold down the button. When you let go of the button, it closes the valve, thus cutting off the fuel to the flame and the flame goes out. Butane lighters don't require a wick, so there's no need to replace wicks over time. There's no wick to replace. Many butane lighters have a means of adjusting how wide that valve will open when you press down on a button. That affects how much butane gas can escape at any given amount of time. So it affects how big the flame will be. More fuel means bigger flame. Less fuel means smaller flame. So if you restrict the valve, you get a very low flame. You open the valve as much as you can, the flame would be much larger. Another advantage was that butane didn't give off an unpleasant odor the way earlier fuels were. They were smelly, but butane didn't smell. It burned without making any sort of smell at all, really. One disadvantage is that it's trickier to refuel a butane lighter. Uh, some butane lighters are marketed as disposable, which really just means there's no way to refuel them at all once they're out, so you're meant to throw them away and buy a new one. And when I say there's no way, people have figured out ways, but typically you're meant to just use it and then to toss it, which is pretty wasteful. Perhaps the best known of these is the Bic lighter, which was first produced in the early 1970s. The Bic lighter was seen as an inexpensive alternative to the more fashionable lighters like Zippo. Other butane lighters are meant to be reusable, and they include a second valve. This is typically on the base of the lighter, the underside of the lighter. And this valve allows butane gas to get injected into the fuel chamber, but prevents it from coming back out. Now, typically, if you were refueling a butane lighter, you would hold the lighter upside down. You'd use something pointy to kind of open up the valve and bleed it of any old butane gas, and then you would get a butane refill can, which uh, has a nozzle on the end. The nozzle goes into the valve of the lighter, and you would just insert the butane can into the lighter, and after just a couple of seconds, like five seconds, it would refill the fuel chamber on the butane lighter. And you'd want to wait a little bit for the fuel inside the lighter to reach room temperature, and then you could start using it again. Over time, a new variant on the butane lighter showed up. This is the piezoelectric lighter. I told you we were going to come back to it. So remember how I said quartz is an interesting material. If you apply mechanical stress to it, the quartz generates an internal electric charge. Well, that's a manifestation of the piezoelectric effect. So a piezoelectric lighter uses this particular phenomenon in order to generate a spark. So there's no ferrocerium in a... Uh, in a in this kind of lighter or or flint, if you prefer, there's none of that. Instead, a piezoelectric lighter typically has a button on the lighter. If you push down on that button, you would probably feel a click, kind of like a click pen. But what's happening is that the button is typically doing two things. It's transferring the force you've just exerted on the button onto some piezoelectric material, and maybe not directly. Uh, it might pull back and then release a spring-loaded hammer, which then strikes this piezoelectric material. That makes the material generate an electric charge, and that creates a difference of voltage between two little electrodes and causes a small spark to fly between them. And at the same time, 
pushing down on the button also releases a valve that opens up uh, the pathway to the, the fuel chamber. So butane gas escapes at that same moment. So the butane gas starts to come out uh, of the chamber through a nozzle at the same time as a spark is flying across the nozzle and that ignites the escaping gas and you get a flame. So you see this in a lot of different types of lighters, including like pocket lighters, but also the utility lighters that I think about, like the the ones that have the very long stems and use them to light candles or fireplaces, that kind of thing. Uh, they typically have the piezoelectric approach as opposed to a ferrocerium kind of lighting system. So you can find lighters like this that actually fit into lighter cases, like the ones made famous by Zippo. So if you preferred that mechanism to the ferrocerium traditional type of lighter, you could swap them out. You could take out one lighter and you put another one in the same case. And the neat thing about this particular type of lighter is that although it uses an electric spark to ignite a flame, there's no need for a battery or anything like that. There's no source of electricity apart from the piezoelectric material. So as long as that material is inside the lighter and as long as the mechanism that exerts mechanical stress onto the material is still working, you should still be able to generate sparks. One other type of lighter I should mention before I close out this episode works on yet another principle. And this would be the old-fashioned car cigarette lighters. And you don't typically see these in cars anymore, at least not as a standard option, but it used to be a really common feature. So they look like little knobs that are typically somewhere in the dashboard. And you would push it in, and it would remain pushed in for a short while before it would pop back out, kind of like a toaster. You would then pull the knob out of the dashboard and the other end from the handle would be glowing red hot. And you would apply that into whatever it was you wanted to light, which more often than not was a cigarette. And the heat was greater than the ignition temperature of the material and it starts to burn. Now, I have a distinct memory of being a kid and my dad patiently explaining to me that the cigarette lighter on the dashboard of our old Dodge Dart would in fact get super, super hot. He was trying to teach me to be careful and not to play with it, right? Because uh, this was in the 1970s when such things were common. And I remember I was a particularly dumb kid. No big surprise there. You guys all know who I am. And I immediately didn't believe him, so I touched it and I burnt myself because uh, I was dumb. But I learned a valuable lesson. One, that my dad was telling the truth and two, that in fact car cigarette lighters get really, really hot. But how do they get hot? Well, in the end of the car cigarette lighter, the business end, the end that lights stuff, there's a coil of wire. And it's typically made from something like nichrome, which is uh, nickel chrome. And it's a generic term for a group of alloys that are made up of, surprise, surprise, nickel and chrome and sometimes other stuff like iron. This material has a pretty high resistivity. Uh, that means it's resistant to electrical current flowing through that material. And quick refresh, you can think of all materials everywhere as being on a spectrum of conductivity. At one end, extreme end of that spectrum, you have stuff that allows electricity to pass without any resistance at all. The electrons just flow through it. There's no problem there. These would be superconductors. And typically, we don't see superconductors unless we have some very special circumstances involved, such as cooling stuff down to near absolute zero. 
On the opposite end of the spectrum, you have material that pretty much prevents any electrical current from passing through that material at all. It just stops. These would be insulators. Nichrome resists the flow of electricity. It allows it to move through, but it resists the flow. And in the process, the metal heats up as some of that energy from the electricity gets converted over into heat. So if you had a coil of this stuff and you passed an electric current through it, the stuff heats up. And that's the basic principle behind inventions like the electric stove and electric space heaters. They use wires or uh, components like this with high resistivity to convert electrical current into heat. Now, when it's not in use, a car cigarette lighter isn't in contact with the electrodes that would otherwise push electric current through the lighter. But when you pressed the lighter in, it would engage with those electrodes and the current would come from the car's overall electrical circuit. Inside the lighter is a spring, so it compresses as you push it in, and there's a little retaining clip that would engage when it was pushed all the way in. It would hold the, uh, the cigarette lighter in that compressed state so it's in contact with those electrodes. But the clip, the retaining clip, was made from a bimetallic material. Now, as the name implies, bimetallic stuff is made up of two metals. And in this case, it's a strip that's made up of two different materials that expand at different rates when they get hot. So you press the lighter in, the current goes through the nichrome wire, the wire heats up, and the bimetallic restraining clip starts to get hot until one side of the clip begins to expand faster than the other and it starts to curl away. Eventually, that bends the clip enough so that the spring is released and the cigarette lighter pops back out from the dashboard. It disengages from the electrodes and you're able to pull it out of the dashboard and that end is super hot. These days, you typically see car manufacturers offer this as an electrical outlet rather than a cigarette lighter, and you could plug something in like a converter so that you can plug in your, your cell phone chargers, that kind of stuff. Uh, but occasionally you can find car manufacturers that offer it as an option, or you could get it as an aftermarket thing for your vehicle. But really, we've seen a, a massive decline in car cigarette lighters over the years, as we've also seen a decline in cigarette smoking in general, which I consider to be a good thing. So there you have it. That's how lighters work. And I think it's a good idea to have a few lighters just in case of emergencies, such as loss of power. A good piezoelectric lighter, particularly one of those utility lighters I was talking about that have the long stem, that can be really handy if you need to light stuff like candles or lamps in the case of a power, power failure. It's also good to know how to use ferrocerium, uh, like ferrocerium sticks or fire starter sticks. Uh, I think it's a must-have component if you ever plan on doing stuff like camping or you want to have like a survivalist gear package, you got to have fire starter sticks. It's a reliable way to generate the sparks you need to start campfires. You don't have to worry about water ruining your matches or you don't have to carry combustible fuel, which in itself can be a danger. The good old fire st sticks will really serve you well in those cases. But that wraps up this episode. If you guys have suggestions for future topics for tech stuff, let me know. You can get in touch with me on social media, Facebook or Twitter. The handle for both of those is techstuffhsw. I look forward to hearing from you and I'll talk to you again really soon. Tech Stuff is a production of iHeartRadio's How Stuff Works. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, 
Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. 